read from Job. Then Job answered, if only my grief could be weighed and my devastation placed with it on the scales, for then it would outweigh the sand of the seas. That is why my words are rash. Surely the arrows of the Almighty have pierced me. My spirit drinks their poison. God's terrors are arraigned against me. Does a wild donkey bray over fresh grass or an ox low over its fodder? Is bland food eaten without salt? Is there flavor in an egg white? I refuse to touch them. They are con like contaminated food. If only my request would be granted and God would provide what I hope for, that he would decide to crush me to unleash his power and cut me off. It would still bring me comfort and I would leap for joy in unrelenting pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should continue to hope? What is my future that I should be patient? Is my strength that of stone or my flesh made of bronze? Since I cannot help myself, the hope for success has been banished from me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I invite you please to join with me in prayer before we continue. Lord, you know, uh, you know our hearts better than we even know ourselves, and you know what each of us is facing. You know how some of us right now are feeling very weighed down, and others of us right now are not, but one day will be by grief. You know none of us will remain untouched by sorrow in this world. And so we pray even now uh, that you help us uh, to listen well, um, to not grasp on to false answers for this, but instead to hear what you have to say to us, uh, that as we see you more clearly, uh, we might be given hope in the face of suffering. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we've already uh, said that this, this morning, as we're continuing through this Explore God series, the question that we are considering is why God allows pain and suffering that He does. Um, and instead of trying to immediately go to kind of like some sort of hypothetical or abstract answer, I think the best way of dealing with this is personally. And, and, and so for Job, that is our, you know, God gives us this kind of personal vantage point through the suffering of Job. And so rather than talking anymore, I want to just consider even how Job begins the passage that was just read. He says, if only my grief could be weighed and my devastation placed with it on the scales, then it would outweigh the sand of the seas. Have you ever experienced grief that is so heavy that you felt like you couldn't stand up under it. Job is saying, if you took, imagine all of the, all of the sand along the coastline, you know, the, think of the Pacific coast or the Atlantic coast, all of the sand all the way along the coastline, and you could somehow gather it up and put it in one enormous side of a balance, and you put my suffering, my grief on the other side, 
my grief would outweigh the sand. Have you ever felt that way? Job has endured a tragedy that's really beyond our ability to comprehend. Um, If we were to back up and look in the first couple of chapters, we would discover that Job initially, for much of his life, was someone who was wonderfully blessed. He was really quite wealthy. I mean, by those days' standards, because of his success as a farmer, his livestock were so numerous that it was more than pretty much anyone else. He was like the Bill Gates in terms of his wealth in that day until one moment on one day he receives news from a messenger that that an army has destroyed most of his flocks and that fire has destroyed the rest and suddenly he has gone from being so wealthy to being nearly penniless. It reminds me of, you know, some of the stories you hear back in 2008 of people whose fortune in just one moment with the crash evaporated. What would you do in a moment like that where, where all of your life savings, everything you worked for, your job, everything was gone and suddenly you discovered you were bankrupt? But that's, that's not even the end of the story for Job in this moment. It's just not that long later, and another messenger comes and knocks on the door, and he opens, and he sees his grave face, and Job feels terror, and everything that he's afraid of is suddenly given voice when this person says, you know how all of your children were eating together at your oldest son's house. There was a tornado, the house collapsed, and they're all dead. I remember uh, when I was in college hearing the story of a family that lived not too far from here, Dwayne and Janet Willis, maybe you might remember how they were driving in a van with their six children and a piece of the highway, like some metal piece that was left on the highway, hit the gas tank, made the van explode, they survived, but all six of their children died within a day. I, I cannot imagine what they must have endured. Each of these are people that they they loved, have names, they had dreams for, and all in one moment, they're gone, and that's Job's story. All in one moment, his three daughters, his seven sons, the pride of his life, are, are gone. And, and, and what makes this story perhaps even more confusing is that Job was a genuinely, truly good man. He was generous with his wealth. People didn't resent his wealth. They were grateful to have him as a neighbor. He was one who was honest, who dealt honestly. He was kind. He was loving. God himself, in the opening chapters of Job, says, Job is a man of integrity who fears me and turns from evil. He was genuinely good. And yet, even as God says this. He also, as Satan asks permission, God gives Satan permission to destroy Job's life completely like he does. And we're left wondering why. Now, to give you just a sense of the kind of a person that Job is, when when this happens to him, His wife, who of course also is is carrying the same degree of, of, of grief, says to Job, just curse God and die. But Job responds saying, shall I receive good things from God, but not bad things? The Lord has given and the Lord has taken. May the name of the Lord be blessed. This is how he initially responds. This shows you kind of the trajectory of his heart, the way he wants to respond. 
But then he sits. We're told he actually sits on the ground for seven days in silence. And, and you can just kind of try to imagine what it must be like. He's just so flooded. He is so overwhelmed. He doesn't know what to do. Everything that had given him joy and hope seems to be destroyed, and, and he is just processing. And as, as he's just sitting there, stunned, in shock, he begins to find something different going within his heart, this, this sense of, of anger, of, of confusion, of unsettledness, and he finds himself not accepting what's happened. No, this is wrong. This is unjust. And at the end of seven days, he just cries out. He cries out first, cursing the day of his birth. May I never have been born. And then as his heart continues to just kind of overflow and as he continues to agonize, he begins to question God and wonders, how in the world could God possibly be just in this? Why? That's, that's the question that, that we find ourselves with. We, we've already asked, why does God allow pain and suffering? For some, this can be almost like this, this puzzle, this hypothetical kind of abstract question where it was like, well, if God is good and he's in control and yet bad things happen, I don't see how that fits. But for many of us, it's not like that. For many of us, it's, it's deeply, deeply personal, right? We, we, see, we see terrible things happen on the news and, and we look and we go, how? Why? Or even closer to home, we, we know someone or we ourselves have experienced terrible abuse. Or, or we think of someone who we love, maybe even a child who is taken away from us in death. And a part of us just says, no. This is not right. Why? And that's, that's the cry that is coming from, from Job's heart. This is not right. Why? And, and, and one other detail of, of this part that I haven't yet mentioned, Job has a, a number of friends, and they really do seem to be good friends because when they hear about what happened to Job, they come to Job, and they've actually been sitting next to Job silent for these seven days. Can you imagine just sitting for seven days in silence as you're grieving with your friend? But as Job finally has this kind of messy response after seven days of silence and starts raising questions and starts asking, his friends seem to feel the need to answer those questions. Why do we do that? Have you noticed that there's, there's this common tendency when someone is, is suffering, there's this temptation, there's this desire that we have to try to say something that will somehow make it better in the moment. I, I think oftentimes it is fueled by a good desire. We, we sometimes don't realize that the best thing is just to sit and to grieve we feel like if only we could say the right thing, that would make things better. Sometimes, though, I think the reason we're doing it is because we are really threatened. It's scary when we see someone else grieving because we realize that could be us. And so we want to say something that will make this world once again seem safe and predictable so that it's safe and predictable for us. And so the friends, as they're hearing Job ask these messy questions that don't seem to have clear answers, they come back with answers that they think clarify things and make this world seem safe once again. And, and there's really, 
two answers that they keep on repeating in so many different ways in chapter after chapter as they go back and forth to Job. One of them is something that Bildad, one of his friends, says. He says, look, Job, God does not reject a person of integrity, and he will not support evildoers. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, Job, God is good to people who are good, and he punishes people who have done wrong. Right now, bad things are happening to you, so you draw the conclusion. In other words, he's saying, this isn't God's doing, Job. This is your fault. I don't know what you've done, but you've done something that has brought this about, and you need to figure this out and figure out how you should repent so that this suffering that you're enduring can come to an end. And we hear that and go, what kind of a friend would say something so horrible in that moment, right? And yet, we say stuff or we hear stuff like this all the time without even realizing it. I remember a friend of mine one time, something good had happened to them, and they said, you know, I must have done something right. There's good karma or something. And, and the implication, of course, is the universe gives to those who are good. Or think about when, when we tell our children you can achieve anything you put your mind to. What are we saying? That your happiness is in your own hands, which, of course, implies if you aren't happy, that's probably your fault as well. Now, there is an, there's an, a kernel of truth to this idea that, that uh, what we experience is somehow kind of something we can be responsible for. We, we, we know people who have made bad decisions and they're experiencing the consequences of those decisions. And likewise, we know that good choices oftentimes can make life better. And if we, if we trace things back to the very beginning, we should recognize that if we're asking, why is this world the way it is? Why did God allow it? We should recognize that Scripture is very clear that God made this world very different. He made this world without suffering. He made this world just and beautiful and good and it was the disobedience of humanity that messed everything up. So there is an element of truth that we are the ones who have brought this about on ourselves. And yet, when we focus it individually on people, it doesn't work. We know probably people who generally seem to be, well, not very nice people who seem to be having a great life, and we probably know of people who are just beautiful people who yet are experiencing misery. And, and it doesn't add up. And they, we, we certainly can't look at their lives and say, well, this is what they did. They've brought this on themselves. And, and Job protests as well. Do you, here, here's what Job says. He says, it's not me. He says, surely the arrows of the Almighty have pierced me. Do you hear that? It's God. My spirit drinks their poison. God's terrors are arrayed against me. It, it's, it's not, I, I, I know my life. I know I haven't brought this about. It's, it's God who has done this to me, and I don't understand why. And we don't understand why. We, that yes, God has allowed this world to fall, and we have brought about the brokenness of this world, but why did he allow that in the first place? And why, when we look at individuals' lives, does God allow this to happen? To just say it's our own fault doesn't satisfy. It's not enough. 
So Job's friends have, have a second answer for them. So Eliphaz says to him, Consider how happy is the person whom God corrects. So do not reject the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also bandages. He strikes, but his hands also heal. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, Job, this isn't actually as bad as you think it is. Yes, right now things feel really bad, but, but God always takes whatever this is bad and he's going to make it great and you're going to be glad, you're going to be so happy about this because this looks bad to you right now, but really it ultimately isn't. And I would say that probably when we feel the need to say something to someone who's suffering, more often than not, this is what we try to say. Some version of this, that it's not really that bad. Right? Like, you know, well, at least you have your health. Or it could have been worse. Or I'm glad that this at least didn't happen this way. Or, or hey, God will work this for your good. We'll say something where we basically say, well, I know it's probably bad right now, but really, there's a bright side to this. Just, just wait and you'll, you'll see this is actually a good thing. Now, Job will have none of it, right? Job says, if only my request would be granted and God would provide what I hope for, that he would decide to crush me. I don't see this as ultimately being good. My one desire right now is that God would put an end to my life. Now again, we know that there is a kernel of truth to this answer to suffering as well, don't we? If we've lived long enough, we know that, that when we look back in our lives, sometimes the, the worst moments in that moment, we look back and realize they were some of the best things that could have happened to us. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say something like, I would never want to go through that again, but I would never want to change it either because of what God did to me, of how, of how God changed me, of how I experienced God's love in that. We, we know that, that there are times that God can work through our suffering that can somehow even make those moments beautiful in hindsight. But if we're honest, it doesn't, we don't always see that, do we? You know, we, sometimes people will quote the Nietzsche quote of whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and sometimes that's true. But sometimes the suffering that doesn't kill you breaks you, and you never recover from it. Sometimes there is no obvious bright side. I mean, what's the bright side of rape? What's the bright side of genocide? Yes, we do have God's promises that he will, even in evil, work good. And yet there is never a confusion in Scripture that trivializes evil that says evil is not that bad. Again and again we see God hates death. He hates evil. Evil is evil, and to try to trivialize it is not an answer to the problem of suffering. So we see these two answers that friends give, these two answers of trying to make things better that is only really making things worse. Well, Job, you probably need to do something, or Job, it's really not that bad. They're two of the most common answers that we give, and they never satisfy. There's a third answer that, that Job's friends don't give, but that often is given today. Well, if you're going to ask why this world has so much suffering and it seems so chaotic, 
at the hands of a God who's supposed to be good? The answer is obvious, we're told. There, there must not be a God. And at first, that seems like a solution. This world is chaotic because it's chaotic, because there is no one in control, because this is all just an accident. This is all something that's just kind of happened on its own. But I would suggest to you that the more that we, we really try to penetrate this way of thinking, the less satisfying we find this as an answer as well. Because if we are saying that there is no one transcendent, if there's no God who has designed this world, if this world is just a result of the process of natural selection, then we should recognize that death cannot be seen as a bad thing. Right? Death is a necessary part of natural selection. And what's more, we should recognize that we, we really don't have any ground to stand on when we speak of the problem of the strong taking advantage of the weak. Because survival of the fittest means that's the way it's supposed to work. The strong are supposed to win, the weak are supposed to die out according to the rules of evolution. My point is, is that if there is no good, there is no evil either. If there is no one who is transcendent, who is giving an order to this world, who declares what is good and evil, then evil is just basically a way of saying what I prefer. I prefer this not to happen, therefore I call it evil. Injustice is just a myth that we make up because we want things to be a certain way, but there's nothing true about it. If we are saying, I cannot fathom, I cannot fathom how this world can be unjust under God's control. To say there is no God also means there is no injustice. And that doesn't satisfy. I mean, I know some people who, who hold that position, but I'll be honest, I think it's self-deception because there is something at the very core of our being that when we see death, we say no. No, that is not right. When we see the weak taken advantage of and hurt and abused, we say, no, that is not right. We know deep down this world is not how it should be. And that very awareness demonstrates there is a way the world should be that's designed to be. It, it demonstrates that there is a God who has made the world and he's given us this memory of how this world should be. To try to answer the problem of evil and saying there is no God makes it no more satisfying. It's even less satisfying. So we have this question, why? Why evil? Why suffering? And each answer that is put out is found to be flimsy, is found to be empty. And Job is experiencing that. If we continue through the book of Job, chapter after chapter, his friends go back and forth with Job, and chapter after chapter, Job gets more um, emotional and more confused until at a certain point, he basically says, I wish someone would hear my case. I have signed my name. Let the Almighty answer me. And he is angry. And perhaps the most stunning part of this whole book is that God does. A storm comes, a whirlwind. It's, it's loud, and God speaks from the whirlwind, showing that he has been listening this whole time. And yet when God speaks, it's not, I think, what Job was expecting. What does God say? He says, Job, were you there when I put this world together. 
Job, do you know what it's like to hold the atoms together, to hold the stars together, to, to make sure the animals are fed throughout the world? Do you know what it's like to keep things together? Job, think of all of the different animals, the crazy animals like crocodiles and hippopotamuses and birds and ostriches. Do you understand why they exist? Do you know what's going on and why they are the way they are and how this world fits together? Now, when we first hear this, we might be taken aback and says, this seems harsh. This seems uncaring that God would answer a suffering, agonizing Job in this way. But consider the alternative. I mean, his friends have already given the answers. Have they made things any better? Do we honestly think that God could say something and the answer to why, that Job would suddenly go, oh, I get it now. That makes sense. Now, any of us who've been through the worst kind of suffering know that any kind of answer that is simple enough for us to understand is never an answer that satisfies. Isn't that right? Any answer to the problem of suffering, of why, that is simple enough for us to understand is never an answer that actually satisfies. And God understands that too. God does not choose the path that, God, that Job's friends have chosen. God doesn't try to answer the question why because he knows that there is nothing that God will say that Job can understand that will satisfy him. So instead of answering the question why, God answers the question who. Who I am, Job and who you are. Job, you, you need to understand that, that I have made this world wonderful and impossible to understand and so diverse and so crazy and so far beyond you with my wisdom. You need to understand how, how limited your thinking is and how vastly beyond my wisdom is. Job, I will not tell you is what he's implying. You will not understand why you are suffering. You're just going to have to look at me and accept that you will have to trust me. And Job, after this long, it's, it's many, many questions. It goes multiple chapters where God is just saying these things. Job, in a way that he was never satisfied before when his friends were speaking, at this point of acceptance before God, he says, I have spoken, but I did not understand. These things are too wondrous for me. I have heard of you with my ears, but now I have seen you with my eyes, and I withdraw my complaint. It's not that Job's grief is over. Of course it's not. It's that somehow beholding God himself has brought him to a point of acceptance that flimsy answers never would. See, how, we, how does God answer the question of why? We see here, I mean, consider the, the Bible, God's word does not ignore 
the reality of this. The whole book of Job is wrestling with the question of why. Psalms, again and again, we see in the middle of lament, they're grieving, why God? This doesn't make sense to us. What that shows us is that God understands. He is not immune to our suffering. He cares and there's space for it, even in his word, to acknowledge that it is real and it is messy and it is hard. God was sitting with Job this whole time, even when Job didn't understand. God was grieving with Job this whole time, even when Job didn't understand. And yet the answer that Job was given was not why, but who. That I am God and that you are not. If we wonder... um, if, if the New Testament changes that, no, the New Testament just continues that very same truth and just deepens it. We wonder if God knows what it is like, and yet now we know God has become one of us. As, as the scripture says, he was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Jesus, God incarnate, suffered. Hebrews reminds us that he was tempted and brought to the point of tears, that when he was in the garden, he grieved, he was tempted, he was brought low. It was like the sands and all the seashore were weighing upon his soul. And and when he went to the cross, the very arrows of God, he felt them wounding him, their poison filling him. And what did Jesus, the Son of God, say while he was on the cross? He said, why? My God, why? And he received silence. We have a God who knows, who knows what it is like to endure the sufferings that you and I endure. And the New Testament teaches us even more than that. This is where it maybe even goes beyond the Old Testament, that we realize not only do we have a God who knows what it is like, but we have a God who has done something about it. You know, the most challenging part of of what I'm saying, and I realize this, is basically saying you're going to just have to trust God. There is no answer. You're just going to have to trust him. And, And our natural response is, can I trust him? Because there's so much about God we don't understand. There's so much that is confusing. But here is the one moment that perhaps more than anything else, we see God most clearly when Jesus is on the cross. And what do we see? We see a God who so deeply hates evil that his son is willing to go to the cross for it. We have a God who so deeply grieves over our suffering who is so unwilling to tolerate our suffering that he will endure the deepest agony imaginable so that he might take away our agony. Just consider that. God in Christ Jesus endured the deepest agony imaginable so that he might take away our agony. And he promises us a day in the future where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more sorrow and no more pain and no more death because of what he has accomplished on the cross. We sang earlier 
um, this song, uh, When Peace Like a River. And that second verse, um, it, this is written by a man, Philip Bliss, who, and I won't go into his story too much, but who himself experienced deep grief, Job-like story. And so he's writing this out of his suffering, and he says in that second verse, when Satan should buffet and trials should come, when I go through the experiences that Job was going, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. We, come into, we came into this time asking the question why, and, and if that's what we're going to hold on to and we're looking for answers, I'm going to tell you that you won't get them here. We don't have in Scripture answers for the why of suffering. But Scripture, I would contend, gives us something better and that is hope. Hope in the knowledge that the God who is overseeing this universe grieves with us and knows what we are experiencing and he cares. Hope that it matters so much to him that he has done everything to conquer it and hope that he has promised that one day all of our grief will be dealt with. The sands of the seashore will be removed and there will be joy. I'd like to invite us, as is our tradition, as we conclude, to just take a couple of minutes to respond in prayer. Maybe if we have been finding ourselves frustrated or angry or doubting God, this is a time for us to confess. Or if we are just grieving, this is a time for us to lament before God. Wherever we are, I invite you to spend some time before God in prayer, and then I'll lead us in a couple minutes' time. Father, we acknowledge before you what you have shown Job, that you are God and that we are not. Lord, I also acknowledge, and my guess is many of us do together, that, that it is so frequently the case that I do not trust you with the things that are dearest to me because I'm scared by the idea of the suffering that might await. Lord, we we do not know why you allow some terrible things to take place. But in this moment, we acknowledge that even if we don't understand, um, you do. And we ask that you enable us to trust you, to trust in the extent of your love, to trust in your hatred of evil, to trust in your commitments to us. We ask, Lord, in that, that you would give us the hope that you offer us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Romans 5 uh, speaks very similarly when we are told that we rejoice 
in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice even in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ has died for us and has forgiven us of our sins. Thanks be to God.